Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. The second law of thermodynamics. Do you know what I mean? I know you know what I mean. Of course you do, right? It's like otherwise known as entropy. But let's just humor the people out there that maybe aren't super familiar with the second law of thermodynamics. It can be summarized this way. All things trend towards disorder. More simply, as one moves forward through time, the net entropy or the degree of disorder in an, in an isolated or closed system will always increase every time. Or put another way, have a look at this. It took you a minute, didn't it? But that was awesome. A little nerdy, but awesome. Now, let's be honest. There's a good chance that you've never once thought of the second law of thermodynamics, and you've never even heard the word entropy before. But you've seen it, right? Like you see it in your garden. If you do not mow your lawn, if you do not pull your weeds, if you do not trim your hedges, eventually your garden will trend towards disorder. You see it in nutrition. I was thinking this week, if I could live on whatever food I wanted, like if I could choose whatever I felt like eating, this is what I came up with. I think I would live on Cheetos, vanilla slab cake, the kind with like the custard between the two layers. Uh, So good, right? Um, Wonder Bars and Rolo ice cream. Okay. But if I just did that, if I did whatever I felt like doing, my body would trend towards disorder, physical entropy. School is the same. Like if you ever, if you did whatever you felt like doing at school, if your books remained closed and your lectures remained unattended, your GPA would trend towards disorder. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about spiritual entropy. I've described it as a drift that there's a moment of time that we're in right now. And and for every one of us, there's a temptation and there's a tendency to drift. I would suggest that it's pretty easy to explain. In my entire lifetime, there has never been a moment when I look around the world and think more that the world needs help and hope and strength and rebuilding. And in my entire lifetime, I don't think that there's ever been a time when the church has had a greater opportunity to bring help and hope and strength and rebuilding and be blessed in the process. But the truth is we need to understand something that we have a spiritual enemy named the devil and he prefers destruction to rebuilding. He prefers disorder to order. He prefers weakness to strength, despair to hope. And so what you're probably going to find in your life right now is there's a temptation and there's a tendency in yourself to spiritually drift. And when we drift as people, when we just allow life to happen to us, we always move from a place of rebuilding towards a place of destruction. But I think we can resist the drift, okay? And so we've been um, basing our discussion around the end of the story of Nehemiah out of the Bible. Just to bring us up to speed quickly, Nehemiah is working as the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. He hears that the walls of Jerusalem are down, that they're laying in ruins. So he travels 1,200 kilometers from Susa to Jerusalem. He assembles a team. He rebuilds the walls so that the people are not vulnerable, afraid, and endangered anymore. 
And when the walls are built, Nehemiah calls everybody in and says, I have a great idea. Let's build beautiful lives behind these beautiful walls. And the people say, yes. And so Nehemiah heads back to Susa and he's probably thinking to himself, "Um, that was a job well done. But over the next decade or so, Nehemiah starts to hear rumors that the people of Jerusalem are starting to drift. That they're not building such beautiful lives behind those beautiful walls after all. So he comes back. And we talked a couple weeks ago, weeks ago how he notices that the people of Jerusalem are drifting in their discernment. And it's crazy to me because that was 2,500 years ago. And yet today in 2020, we still have that same tendency. We still have that same temptation to drift in our discernment, but we don't have to. We can resist the drift. And then last week we talked about the fact that the people of Jerusalem, they were drifting in their dedication. And amazingly, the same temptation from 2,500 years ago still happens to us that we could be tempted to drift in our dedication, but we don't have to. We can resist the drift. So I want to continue with the story right now at verse 15. It says this, during these days, while back in Judah, I also noticed, this is Nehemiah speaking, I also noticed that people treaded wine presses, brought in sacks of grain, and loaded up their donkeys on the Sabbath. They brought wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of stuff to sell on the Sabbath. So I spoke up and I warned them about selling food on that day. I confronted the leaders of Judah. What's going on here? This evil profaning the Sabbath. Isn't this exactly what your ancestors did? And because of it, didn't God bring down on us and this city all this misery? And here you are adding to it, accumulating more wrath on Jerusalem by profaning the Sabbath. As the gates of Jerusalem were darkened, By the shadows of the approaching Sabbath, I ordered the doors shut and not to be opened until the Sabbath was over. I placed some of my servants at the gates to make sure that nothing to be sold would get in on the Sabbath day. Traders and dealers in various goods camped outside the gates once or twice. But I took them to task. I said, you have no business camping out here by the wall. If I find you here again, I'll use force to drive you off. And that did it. They didn't come back on the Sabbath. (laughs) Nehemiah, man, he, he gets serious. Wait till next week. I, I can't wait to tell you about the time that he started going UFC on a bunch of people in Jerusalem. But for today, I want to talk about the Sabbath. Again, Nehemiah is talking to the people of Jerusalem about the Sabbath again. See, I, I told you a while ago that the Sabbath is an invitation that God gives us to kindness. Kindness to ourselves and kindness to each other. Uh, God established the Sabbath right at the beginning. On six days, God created everything. And on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he was winded, but because he wanted to establish a principle and a pattern for you and me of kindness. And what I want to suggest to you today is another way of expressing that invitation is it's an invitation uh, to delight. And I want to talk today about how we can delight in ourselves and delight in our people. Okay, that's part of the Sabbath invitation, that we would delight in ourselves and delight in our people. And it's no accident that I I put those two in that order, right? There was a time when one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, I'm going to give you two. Number one, love God with everything you've got. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. So this whole um, delighting in you and delighting in your people, they're completely linked, completely tied. So first of all, I want to give you an invitation today. Delight in you. Delight in you. Are you delighting in you? Let me ask you three questions. Number one, how do you talk about and to yourself? Number two, how do you value yourself? And number three, how are you kind to yourself? 
So number one, how do you talk about and to you? For almost as long as I can remember, like going back to middle school, I remember every once in a while, somebody would come up to me and say, Mike, you're way too hard on yourself. You put yourself down too much. And I remember thinking, what a stupid thing for that person to say. <laughs> like, what's the alternative, right? Like I start walking around going, hey, you probably heard of me. I'm Mike Manis. I'm amazing. And obviously it's great to meet me. Like, you know what I mean? I, I, I never really knew what those people were saying. But about a month ago, I saw a counselor and he explained it in a really powerful way that I want to kind of pass on to you. He said, for every one of us, we have two things that we can offer the world. The first thing that we can offer the world is authenticity. Authenticity. He said, Mike, you're really, really good at that. Authenticity is when you take off the mask. You're not pretending. You are who you are. You wear your heart on your sleeve. You're not hiding behind your highlight reel. You are who you are. He says, and there's something incredible about authenticity, because when you offer the world your authenticity, you give the world permission to be real. He said, but there's a second thing that we can offer the world too, that we need to offer the world as well. And that is an offering of beauty. He said, Mike, you're not as good at this one. That you need to delight in yourself, delight in you, not out of a sense of arrogance or pride, but out of a sense of gratitude to the God who made you. Coming to the point where you can say, I'm thankful for me. I'm gifted, I'm equipped, I'm anointed, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I have a plan, I have a purpose, I have power, I have love, I have a sound mind. I am grateful, I delight in me. He said, here's the thing, Mike. When you offer the world authenticity, you give them permission to be real. But when you offer the world your beauty, you give them permission to shine. Give the world permission to shine. How do you talk to you. How do you talk to you? Remember, Jesus says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So how would you feel if other people talk to you the way that you talk to you? Would that be a problem for you? If so, why? See, here's the thing. You need to delight in you. But we're in this moment where I really believe that we have a spiritual enemy that wants to have you drift from delight to defeat. And he wants to speak words of defeat. He wants to whisper words of defeat to you. And he wants you to repeat them to yourself. You are a failure. You are a lost cause. You can't do anything right. You're not. You'll never. You can't. And maybe you're looking at me right now going, okay, Mike, I get it. Like, so the devil is whispering these things in my ear, but so it's not me speaking then it's him. So it's not really anything I have control of. You absolutely have control. And let me tell you how. Just because he gives you a thought doesn't mean you need to think it. Just because he gives you a thought doesn't mean you need to repeat it. Like, for example, let's say you and I are walking down the street one day, minding your own business, and a seagull lands in your head, okay? That would be so weird and pretty cool if it happened to you. I would laugh at you, okay? It would be funny, right? But, but, but let's just, that wouldn't be your fault. Like, a seagull just landed in your head. That, that it, hasn't, it wasn't your fault, right? Now, understand this illustration, I got to ask you just for a second. See, where, where I came from, seagulls are sort of famous for one main thing. And I don't really know how to explain that politely. So let's just put it this way. Seagulls are famous for making a mess. Okay, does that make sense? All right. We're walking down the street, seagull lines in your head, not your fault. But let's imagine that the next day, 
I see you again, we're hanging out. But now you've allowed the seagull to build a nest in your head. Okay, that would be so weird, right? Like that thing is messing on your head 24 seven. So here's a question. What are you gonna do with those thoughts? What, what, are you, what are you gonna do when the enemy comes at you and whispers and wants to drift you from uh, delight to defeat? You need to, you need to take charge of your thoughts. The, the Bible says we can take captive every thought. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, you need to take captive of those thoughts. The Bible says that the enemy is a liar and an accuser. So when he comes at you with lies and accusations, you respond in Jesus' name. You say, that's not true. That's not true. I am real. I am not perfect. And yet I delight in me. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am beautiful. I have a purpose. I have power. I have gifts. I have a life before me and the best is yet to come in Jesus name. So number one, how do you talk to and about you? Number two, how do you value you? How do you value you? See, in our world today, uh, most people value themselves according to the two A's. The two A's are achievement and accumulation. Achievement and accumulation. And, and, and for many people in the world, those two A's drive us. I want you to think about that. They drive us. They drive us. They, they, have, the, they have the driver's seat of our lives. You, you look back to this story in Nehemiah. Why are they not Sabbathing? Why are they not accepting God's invitation to delight? Well, here's why. There's money to be made. There's business to be had. There's achievement to move forward. So I want to ask you something. Because if you know me at all, listen, if you know me at all, you know I'm all for excellence. I'm all for creativity. I'm all for ingenuity. I'm, 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 I'm all for hustle. I'm all for perseverance. I'm all for finding a way. I'm all for getting her done, as they say in Red Deer. I'm all for that. And I hope if you've get, been given the choice between winning and losing, you win. I hope you succeed. I hope you create. I hope you change the world. Or don't. I hope you win. I hope you succeed. I hope you achieve or don't. You understand, right? It will not change your value at all. Your value has already been achieved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not questionable anymore. And here's what you need to know. For so many of the world right now, those two A's, achievement, and accumulation are driving us. And they're just really bad taskmasters. Because it's a moving target. And enough is never enough. And you can never get enough of whatever it is to be finally fully satisfied. So delight in you. You're valuable. Right now. So the three questions. Number one, how do you talk to you? How do you value you? And finally, how are you kind to you? How are you kind to you? I remember a while back, I told you that someone asked Dallas Willard this question. They said, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would that one word be? And Dallas Willard said, relaxed. And I was thinking to myself, man, what if we could look over our year and say, man, that describes my year really well, relaxed. But I think that's kind of a long time, a whole year. So let's break it down. 
365th of a year is a day. So let's talk about a day. I want to give you five ways that you can be kind to yourself today. Okay, you ready? So number one, leave early. Drive in the slow lane and don't weave in and out of traffic. This is difficult. Okay, I did this today. And I want to tell you the honest truth. When I'm driving in the slow lane, every time somebody passes me, there's a part of my competitive spirit that wants to go, oh, you're kidding me, right? And I want to like blow past them. And then every once in a while, when you're driving along in the slow lane, like doing the speed limit, maybe a little bit more, somebody will pass you and, and you're coming up to a stoplight and they'll pull in and they'll slam on the brakes because they think the line in front of you is a little bit shorter than the line in front of them. And when that happens, what I kind of feel like doing is climbing out of my car, walking up to their door, pulling them out of their seat, throwing them into the ditch and continuing on with my day. But I don't. Here's the question. Can you just leave 10 minutes early, take a breath and just drive in the slow lane? And if it's a nice day, how about this? Roll down the windows and breathe. And breathe. It's good. It's fine. It's going to be good. So number two, don't text and drive. You're like, Mike, is this a PSA? No, not really. I, I, I want to talk about texting and driving. I want to give you three possible reasons why you might text and drive. Okay? So here's the first one. You have a compulsive relationship with your phone and you can't stop holding it. Okay, so much so that you cannot stop holding your phone and looking at this little tiny screen of your phone instead of out the windshield when you're hurtling down the road at 120 kilometers an hour. That's the first possible reason why you text and drive. Here's the second. Your life is unmanageable. I mean, you're busy. Shockingly busy. Like so busy, in fact, that you cannot get it all done. There's no way. And, 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 and even to try to come close to it, you need to be staring at a phone screen instead of your windshield while you're hurtling down the road at 125 kilometers an hour. You're going faster this time. It's scary. Okay. Or here's the third possible reason. Uh, you have people in your life when they text you that are so demanding of you that they want a response and they want it now. So much so, listen, so much so that they would rather that you hurl down the road staring at a small phone screen rather than your windshield while going 132 kilometers an hour than make them wait. Which one is it for you? Because no matter which one it is, here's what I suggest. Reverse engineer your life. Change whatever you need to change about the, one of those three things so that you do not have to text and drive. Thirdly, and somewhat related... You need to show your phone who's boss. Here's another way to put it. Parent your phone. Do you know what I mean? So in other words, you decide, listen, you decide what time you want your phone to wake up in the morning. I personally don't think it should be exactly the same time that you wake up. Make it wait for an hour or so. But that's up to you. You choose. And, and you need to choose what time you want your phone to go to bed at night. I personally don't think it should be the exact same time that you go to bed, but you choose. Not only that, but you need to ask yourself, what is my plan on social media? I don't just drift there. So what am I doing on social media? You need to, you need to come up with a plan because you need to show your phone who is boss. Ha have you heard, by the way, of the dumb phone movement? Have, have you ever heard of a dumb phone? So a few years ago, what companies started doing is they started producing these phones that, well, all they could do was actually make calls and they can send texts as long as you're okay with using an alpha numeric keyboard. 
but they do not have social media and they do not have internet. And the reason why these companies started producing these dumb phones is because they thought there was gonna be lots of older people that were just overwhelmed with trying to use a smartphone that they wanted to go back to a dumb phone. But guess what happened? They sold millions and millions and millions and millions of these phones, many of them to younger people because they got to the point in their lives when they could not take charge of their phone. So they said, you know what? I'm gonna try something else. So here's a thought, get a dumb phone if you have to, or turn your smartphone into a dumb phone if you have to. Okay, so here's the fourth invitation to kindness I have for you. Create margin in your life every day. Here's a little rule of thumb. Every place you have to be, every meeting, every appointment, uh, create a schedule that would allow you to be there about 10 minutes early and just sit. Create. Pray. Have a conversation with somebody. See, I believe that some of the sweetest parts of life actually happen in the margins. Some of the most important parts of your life will happen in the margins. And here's the problem. What if you don't have any? So create the kind of life, create the kind of margin in your life that would allow you to arrive at your next appointment about 10 minutes early and just be. And finally, fifth, the fifth invitation to kindness. Spend some time alone and quiet today. Spend some time alone and quiet. I'd recommend about two minutes per day, if you can. Preferably outside, if you can go for a walk. Two minutes a day, two hours a week, maybe two days a year. Quiet. I think you need to delight in you. Not out of a sense of pride or arrogance, but out of a sense of gratitude of a God who made you so well. I want to read you a poem that my wife, Corinne, wrote years ago. It's called The Restorer, and it's about you. You seek to rebuild me, for I am broken. Like a treasured piece of furniture, once standing in its place with dignity, overwhelming in its natural beauty. The years pass and the treasure becomes a once treasure. The years of neglect stripping of its purity. Plastic flowers adorn its top, their vase scratching the once flawless surface. A coat of yellow paint meant to beautify now hides the natural perfection of the grain. Its raw beauty forgotten, hidden from sight and lost to memory. Painful is the sight of the once treasure, and so it's dragged up the narrow stairs into the attic. It's home now, an unremarkable corner occupied by worms and dust. As the attic door closes, the moist dust begins to decay, and the worms make the wood their home. The once treasure is forgotten, forsaken by all but you. The years pass slowly for the once treasure, alone in the dusty dark of the attic. Sight of it brings painful reminders of the yellow paint of neglect and the gaudy flowers of abuse and the plastic vase of transgression that tainted and scarred and bent. And so the attic door is locked and the once treasure fades, forgotten to all but you. Hidden for years, yet finally the day comes when a triangle of dust-flecked light invades the dim corner of the once treasure's attic home. Eyes that find the once treasure should be filled with shame, but in these eyes there is recognition and kindness. You blow off the thick layer of dust. You run your scarred and calloused car carpenter's hands along the blistered, worm-damaged surface. You bend closer. There beneath the gaudy paint, you see a minute patch of true brown 
the grain strong and sure. You smile. You have not forgotten. You straighten up and as you roll up your sleeves, you whisper, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Again, I will rebuild you and you shall be rebuilt. And so you set to work. Undaunted by the task before you, for this is what you do. You are the restorer. The hours pass and then the days and still you chip and scrape until the yellow paint litters the ground at your feet. You look at the knife that scrapes and marks and you know that it will leave scars. Yet you know that without the scraping, the true wood would be buried forever beneath the years of gaudy yellow paint. Picking up the sandpaper, you begin to smooth the surface of the once treasure. Beneath the gentle persistence of your hand, the wormholes give up their raggedness and the stubborn paint surrenders. At last, you straighten your bent back and say, it is finished. You begin the difficult descent of the narrow attic stairs, carrying the once treasure easily on your back, as though familiar with bearing rough burdens. Your eyes find the gaping hole left by the absence of the once treasure, and you carefully replace the treasure now restored. It's true that the original shine is lost, and the once flawless surfaces pocked with smoothed out wormholes and scarred with the marks of the scraping knife. Yet this does not bring dismay, for you see that the treasure now restored holds a far greater beauty. For it's now beauty remembers the smell of the yellow paint and the weight of the plastic vase, and it will not forget the freedom that came from the touch of the carpenter's hand. As the carpenter turns, his work complete, the treasure now restored whispers, thank you, for I have been rebuilt. That's you. That's you. You're the treasure now restored. Yeah, I guess if you look back far enough, you can see some gaudy yellow paint and some plastic vases. But that's the past. You're the treasure now restored. Can I ask you to do me a favor? Can you talk to you like that? Can you value you like that? Can you be kind to you like that? You need to delight in you and you need to delight in your people. So same question, how do you talk to your people? It's amazing because <clears throat> if you're mean when you talk to you, eventually you'll be mean when you talk to your people. That's not exactly specifically true, by the way, because <clears throat> you'll talk mean to the people who you can get away with talking mean to. And there's a tragedy in that. It sort of reminds me years and years ago, my best buddy Grant King and I <clears throat> were driving in Red Deer in his mom's full side full-size Chevy van. That thing was amazing. It had two big captain seats in the front, and in the back there was four captain seats with a table and a fridge. It was like a party on wheels. Okay, so we're driving down uh, the main street in Red Deer, and Grant is flying, like he's going. And we pull out to pass this Monte Carlo with four guys in it. And I look down, and I see the two guys in the front of that Monte Carlo, and I realize right away that Grant and I we have made their acquaintance before, these two guys in the front of the Monte Carlo. Uh, we had an altercation with them the weekend before, and we had left them injured and embarrassed. Okay? So that's a good summary of that. So anyways, we're driving, and Grant is flying, and I say, Grant, I'm pretty sure that's so-and-so and so-and-so. And he's like, no way, really? 
and we didn't have to wonder for very long because the Monte Carlo, after Grant pulled in, sped up very quickly and then blew past us. And as it blew past us, it pulled across our lane like this and stopped. And so now Grant had one of three choices. He could drive up onto the sidewalk, he could, um, he could like ram right into their car or he could stop and Grant stopped. And as soon as we stopped, the four guys in the Monte Carlo, well, they bail out. They're, they're coming to the van and they can't wait because they got some things that they want to say and do to us. So Grant and I get out of the van and then the sliding door on Grant's mom's van opens and the four guys that are in the back with us get out too. And you've never seen four guys jump into a Monte Carlo as quick as those four guys did. They jumped back in their car and they drove off. Here's my lesson. Don't be the guys in the Monte Carlo. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like, don't be mean to the people you can get away with being mean to. Don't talk mean to them. Because the tragedy of it is, who will you really get away with that? You will get away with talking like that to the people who show you the most unconditional form of love. So I want you to go back. How do you talk to you? Because eventually the way you talk to you will be made manifest in the way you talk to your people. Second, how do you value your people? How do you value your people? See, when you <clears throat> value yourself according to achievement and accumulation, you're always going to end up valuing other people that way. And it's heartbreaking because the truth is some of the people in our world who need most to be loved by the world standards are the most unlovable. Sometimes the people in our world who need the most to be noticed, according to the world's standards, are the least noticeable. And sometimes the people in our world who need most to be valued, according to the world's standards, are the least valuable. So take another look. How do you value your people? And then finally, how are you kind to your people? Maybe you've heard me say this before. Be kind. Everyone you know is fighting a great battle. Let me close with a story. Sister Mary Rose McCready, president of a rescue center for homeless kids in New York City called Covenant House, tells this story. She came to our front door Tuesday morning, ragged and dirty clothes on her back and a little aluminum paint can in her arms. From the second she stepped inside, she made it clear to us that she and the paint can were a package deal. Whatever she did, wherever she went, that little paint can never left her hands. When Kathy sat in the crisis shelter, the can sat in her arms. She took the can with her to the cafeteria that first morning and to bed with her that first night she slept. When she stepped into the shower, the can was only a few feet away. When she dressed, the can rested alongside her feet. I'm sorry, this is mine, she would tell our counselors whenever we asked her about it. This can belongs to me. Do you want to tell me what's in it, Kathy? I asked her one time. Um, not today, she'd say, and then quietly walk off. When Kathy was sad or angry or hurt, which happened a lot, she took her paint can to a quiet dorm room on the third floor. Many times I'd pass by her room and watch her rock gently back and forth, the can in her arms. Sometimes she talked to the paint can in low whispers. Early this one morning, I decided to accidentally run into her again. Would you like to join me for breakfast, I asked. That would be great, said Kathy. We sat in a corner of our cafeteria, talking quietly over the din of 150 ravenous homeless kids. Then I took a deep breath and I plunged into it. Kathy, that's a really nice can. What's in it? 
For a long time, Kathy didn't answer. She rocked back and forth, her black hair swaying across her shoulders. Then she looked over at me, tears in her eyes. It's my mother, she said. Oh, I said, what do you mean it's your mother? It's my mother's ashes. I went and got them from the funeral home. See, I even asked them to put a label right here on the side. It has her name on it. Kathy held the can up before my eyes. A little label on the side chronicled all that remained of her mom. Date of birth, date of death, name. That was it. Then Kathy pulled the can close and hugged it. I never really knew my mother, Kathy told me. I mean, she, th- she threw me in the garbage two days after I was born. Sister Mary checked Kathy's story. Sure enough, the year she was born, the New York newspapers ran a story saying the police had found a little infant girl in a dumpster. And yes, it was two days after Kathy was born. I ended up living in a lot of foster homes, mad at my mom. But then I decided I was going to try to find her. I got lucky. Someone knew where she was living. I went to her house. She wasn't there. M- my mother was in the hospital. She had AIDS. I went to the hospital and I got to meet her the day before she died. My mother told me she loved me, sister. Kathy said, crying. That's why I went to get her ashes. I reached out and hugged Kathy. And she cried in my arms for a long, long time. It was tough getting my arms around her because she just wouldn't put the paint can down. But she didn't seem to mind, and I know I didn't. I saw Kathy again a couple hours later, eating dinner in our cafeteria. She made a point to come up and say hi, and I made a point to give her a hug. Be kind. Everyone you know is fighting a great battle. Everyone you know has a story. Everyone you know has a paint can. So be kind. It's the invitation of the Sabbath. It's not a legalistic thing to shout about. It's just an invitation to delight. To delight in you. And to delight in your people. And as we close today, I want to remind you what I said earlier, that your worth, your value, has already been completely and totally established by Jesus, that Jesus died for you and he rose again for you. Your value is absolutely completely established. We call that the gospel, the good news, salvation. So I wanna tell you right now that Jesus came because he loves you that much. He died because he loves you that much. He rose again because he loves you that much. And if you've never accepted that free gift, if you've never, if you've never taken hold of that salvation, that says your sins can be forgiven, your life can be empowered, your chapters from here on out can be beautiful and free, and your eternity is absolutely secure. If you've never accepted that, I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. So I'm gonna pray and invite you to pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love me just as I am. And thank you because of you, I can live a beautiful life. Not just a life of endurance, but a life of delight. So I pray that you would forgive my sins and that you would empower my life, that I could follow you one next step at a time, today, tomorrow, and forever. I pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Man, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, I'm so stoked for you. So can I just ask you to do one thing for me? Can you text the keyword LIFE, L-I-F-E, to 604-670-3040? We don't want to stalk you, but we really want to support you because that's the way we live this beautiful Christian life. Now, before I close, can I invite you again? Delight in you. Delight in you. Delight in your people. 
may it re be reflected in the way you talk, in the way you value, and in the way that you are kind. I love you guys. Don't miss next week when we see Nehemiah go UFC. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.